Now, one of the first results of original sin in the human soul, after the loss of grace itself, sanctifying grace, and after the loss of the preternatural gifts of impassibility and immortality, infused knowledge, well, Adam and Eve were given infused knowledge, and yet their, their intellects were darkened as to what to do with that knowledge. Uh, after that was accomplished by sin, all of that was lost, we have then the effects on the human, the human mind and the human heart. And one of those first effects, and one of the most devastating effects, is the, the effect of anxiety. We have now anxieties, and well we should, because we are at war with our Creator, and all of nature now is at war with us, it seems. And um, so we suddenly find ourselves, as Adam and Eve found themselves, find ourselves uh, anxious because we who have betrayed God are in a world that is quite hostile to us. And uh, Adam and Eve were put out of the garden and they were told now they will have to labor and sweat and now they will have to suffer and die. So anxiety came very closely. The word anxiety, by the way, uh, comes from a, a, a Latin word, angor. And uh, even the word ango, ango means to constrict, as in to choke, to constrict something. And we think of our uh, word anguish, and that's what anguish does. It feels like it's somehow squeezing the life out of it. It's like a constrictor. Uh, angustus means very narrow. We have the expression angst. You've seen that used sometimes, A-N-G-S-T, to have angst. Well, just another way of saying there's anxiety that is just sort of choking us from the inside. Even the Greek, ancho, ancho, has a sense of choking. So all of this, all of this invokes a kind of sense of dread, a sense of dread. Now, against all of that anxiety, we have to uh, stand our faith. We have to, as it were, launch our faith against all of this anxiety. We have to launch our trust in God against all of this anxiety. And if you, if you look through the sacred scriptures, if you read the Bible, you'll find that God often refers to this sense of anxiety that we have. Now, you know, we realize as men, we react to anxiety in a different way than the ladies react. Ladies do have anxiety, of course. They have perhaps less of a natural sense of control over things than we do as men. Men tend to have a greater sense of having control of things, uh, perhaps an exaggerated sense of control, as often happens, as we ask ourselves, well, what could possibly go wrong? And we find out very soon what could possibly go wrong. We just had the example of that when the whole world was focused on that submersible that went down to see the Titanic and now has been found to have been crushed instantaneously by the pressures of the water and the five people in it instantaneously crushed to death. Their lives snuffed out there. Uh, some 
thousands of feet below the surface of the, of the sea. And uh, again, it's a tribute to human... Uh, uh, what, what did Ballard say? Ballard, the great... that He's still alive, actually, who discovered the Titanic. He said it was a tribute to human uh, pride, actually, uh, hubris, um, and what happened there with the sinking of the Titanic and now just recently with this uh, submersible that's gone down. All these things are tributes to our uh, monuments to human pride and arrogance. That was the word he used, arrogance. Well, against all of that, we have, on the other hand, this anxiety that things can and will go wrong and do go wrong. But God has given us words about this. He has addressed this to us. For example, in St. Paul's epistle to the Philippians, chapter 4, verse 6, God, uh, actually St. Paul admonishes us to be of good heart. He says, and not be worried. The word often used in Scripture is solicitous, to be solicitous. That is to, has to do with being worried and full of anxieties. This is what St. Paul said to the Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your modesty be known to all men. The Lord is nigh. These words we hear as we approach Christmas, the Feast of the Nativity. Be nothing solicitous, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your petitions be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If there's one thing that is opposed to anxiety and solicitude, it is this peace of God, this peace of soul. And this is what we are constantly admonished to have in sacred scripture. Psalm, now to the Old Testament, Psalm 33. The eyes of the Lord are upon the just and his ears unto their prayers. But the countenance of the Lord is against them that do evil things to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The just one cried out, and the Lord heard them and delivered them out of their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a contrite heart, and he will save the humble of spirit. Many are the afflictions of the just, but out of them all will the Lord deliver them. So here from Psalm 33, a Psalm of King David, who certainly had a lot of anxieties and afflictions in his life, some of them well-deserved, of course, as you know. Nonetheless, they were real, and he cried out to God for help. And lo and behold, it says, again, the expression, just as you read in, in Philippians, the Lord is nigh, the Lord is near to those. The Lord is near to those who trust in him. He is there, he is attentive to them, and he will deliver them out of all of their afflictions. And again, Psalm 34 uh, says the same. The very next Psalm repeats the same thought. And back to the New Testament, Second Timothy uh, verse, chapter 1. For which cause I admonish thee, that thou stir up the grace of God which is in thee by the imposition of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sobriety. So again... God has not given us a spirit of fear. We have inflicted that upon that ourselves by our sins. But God does not give that spirit of anxiety and solicitude. 
If there is any kind of fear that God gives, it is a gift of the fear of the Lord that it starts a person converting from sin to grace. So that's a holy fear. But we're not talking about a holy fear when we're talking about anxiety and anguish. Because rather, the holy fear of the Lord actually extinguishes the anxiety. It is the answer to anxiety. <clears throat> and in Jeremiah chapter 29, again back to the Old Testament, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of affliction, to give you an end and patience. And you shall call upon me, and you shall go, and you shall pray to me, and I will hear you. You shall seek me, and you shall find me. When you shall seek me with all your heart, you shall find me. And again, St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. Come to me, all you that labor and are burdened, and I will refresh you. Take up my yoke upon you, and learn of me, because I am meek and humble of heart. And you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is sweet and my burden is light. The answer to our restlessness and our burdens is to be found in trust in our Lord. Psalm 55, they have defiled his covenant. They are divided by the wrath of his countenance, and his heart hath drawn near. His words are smoother than oil, and the same are darts. Now this refers to the, the, the unjust man. Cast thy care upon the Lord, though, and he shall sustain thee. He shall not suffer the just to waver forever. So the just man faced by the attacks of the deceit and the malice of someone who is unjust to turn to God. But thou, O God, shalt bring them down into the pit of destruction. That's how the just, unjust will go. But the just, the just will be saved by the Lord, and he will sustain them. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Now the Lord of peace himself give you everlasting peace in every place. The Lord be with you all. Those words from Second Thessalonians are very significant because our Lord... Uh, because just the chapter before, St. Paul talks about the coming of the Antichrist, certainly a time of great anguish on the earth. But here, St. Paul follows that up by saying, Now the Lord of peace himself give you everlasting peace in every place. St. John, chapter 14, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth do I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. And Hebrews chapter 13, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Philippians, I can do all things in him who strengtheneth me. Isaiah in the Old Testament, chapter 41, fear not, for I am with thee. Turn not aside, for I am thy God. I have strengthened thee and have helped thee. And the right hand of my just one shall be upheld. Now, at the Last Supper again, where we found ourselves a little while ago, we return there for these words of our Lord. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If not, I would have told you, because I go to prepare a place for you. In fact, in sacred scripture, there are 365, there are more than 365 statements 
in God's word, admonishing us to have confidence, to be at peace, not to give way to anxiety, not to be solicitous about the things that might happen to us in this life. There's one for every day of the year, a command from God to have good heart, to have strength and courage, and not to be overcome by fear, not to let anxiety take the better of us. You know, there is, of course, a corresponding uh, element in the brain of everyone that, that actually must somehow be at the service of the powers of the soul. So if the soul can experiencing it, experience it, then there must be something that echoes that in the brain as kind of a material answer to it, or that is, that is affected by that. And so we, we shouldn't be surprised to find that anxiety also in the soul has a physical effect, and it shows itself in the brain. Uh, but the brain is not the mind, and the mind is not the brain, any more than, than either of them are the soul itself. Your powers of intellect and will are faculties of your soul. But united with your body, yes, there is an effect there. And so there's a chemistry of anxiety. There's a certain chemistry to anxiety. They actually can tell, you know, what chemicals flow when a person is traumatized or suffering, anxious. Anxiety attacks. Uh, there's a reaction in the brain that produces cortisol and adrenaline. That's how we react to the sense of anxiety, producing cortisol and adrenaline. And actually, epinephrine in the brain actually begins that process. These things are all very measurable, all very identifiable. The question is, why does the why does the brain begin with to react this way? What sets it off? What about the amygdala? The amygdala in the brain actually starts this panicky anxiety. Well, uh, that's a very good question, you know. And a lot of the physiologists have studied this for quite some time. But you and I know original sin has upset that balance, not of nature, but with the supernatural, has upset that connection with the supernatural in our systems. And so we are prone now to that amygdala in our brain actually uh, causing even panic attacks and anxiety and uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and so many things from that little almond-shaped part of the brain in the very center of the brain that uh, seems to dictate so much of our lives with anxiety. Um, what is the cure for this? Is there a cure for it? Actually, there is. The only actual remedy for anxiety is, oddly enough, exactly what our Lord himself has told us that we need to learn from him. The remedy for anxiety is humility. It's humility. I mean, ultimately, what causes this anxiety stems from pride, of course, you know, because all sin... All sin stems from pride, and all anxiety stems from sin. So you'd have to be able to trace the line of descent of anxiety back to pride anyway. But you'd have to be able to trace the cure for it back to humility. Our Lord says, learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart. And it is precisely there that we find the answer, 
the answer to all of our anxieties, the meekness and humility of heart of our Lord. We have to take that. We have to learn from him. We have to take that in, breathe that in, as it were. Why would that be so? Well, is it not our pride that, that makes us anxious or makes us, shall we say, prone to anxiety? Is it not our pride that tells us that we actually have to take care of everything? And if we don't, no one will. Is it not our pride and our faithful, faithlessness? Our faithlessness <clears throat> that tells us if we don't take care of it, no one else will. It's entirely up to us. Again, we've broken that mooring and a trust with God, and we've set ourselves adrift. And now we think, I must, I must take care of all these problems myself. I have to stand alone because I've cut myself up off of my Lord and my Savior. That would be the case if one did not have faith, certainly. There's plenty of room for anxiety when there's no faith. And there's plenty of room for thinking, I am on my own and I must take care of all these things myself. And it is pride that can tell us that. It is our pride that tells us that I have to take care of these things. It's entirely up to me. So that faithlessness and that pride reinforce each other. <clears throat> and the only way to offset the terrible result of that, of facing a hostile world and facing the, even the 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 malice of hell itself on your own, the only way to overcome that is to accept your own limitations, recognize who you really are in the scheme of things, and to acknowledge Almighty God for who he is. And you have to realize that, no, there are many things in life that you do not have control over and you cannot have control over. You have to accept it. We all have to accept that fact. We have to accept it and not only accept it, we have to embrace it in the sense that we have to accept the fact that God himself, God himself is the one who tells us, I will be your champion. I will champion your cause. <clears throat> and you may feel still, well, uh, even if I do have complete faith in God to take care of me, of my loved ones, I see that there are still souls that are to be lost. So can I have absolute confidence in God's mercy? And the answer is, I can have absolute confidence in his mercy, yes. Absolute confidence is mercy to do what we allow him to do. You know, sometimes people ask, is there a limit to God's mercy? Sometimes they ask, is there a, a limit to God's mercy for others? Is there a limit to God's mercy for me? Is there only a certain amount of sin that I can commit before God will, in a sense, cut me off and say, no more mercy for him? Is there then some kind of ground for me to say, I have sinned too much and I'm going to go to hell and there is no hope for me anymore? If we say that there is a limit to God's mercy in the sense that we sin to a certain point and after that, God will no longer provide the graces we need to repent at all, and that he's already considered us condemned to hell even before we die and are judged. Well, then we might make a case for despair. And despair is one of those sins, you know, that is against the Holy Ghost. 
Despair is turning one's back on God's mercy. If we were to actually say that God's mercy has run out for me, that I've sinned too much, that there is no forgiveness possible for me, then I might actually make a case for despair. And that would be a terrible thing, obviously. There's no ever, no justification for despair. So we can't say that God's mercy is absolutely inaccessible to me, that God has cut off his mercy from me, and I've already condemned in this life. There's no repentance possible. So at least we have to agree with this. We have to agree that God will always provide the sufficient grace for someone to repent of his sins and therefore be saved. The only way that you can cut yourself off from God's mercy, really, is by rejecting his mercy and refusing to repent of sin. But one might say, well, but there's also another sin against the Holy Ghost, which is called final impenitence and obstinacy and sin. So doesn't that mean if there's obstinacy and sin, which is a sin against the Holy Ghost, which cannot be forgiven in this world and the next, doesn't that mean that a soul is already cut off from God's mercy? Well, in the sense that a person has decided to reject God's mercy, yes, you might say that, yes, a person has already cut himself off from that mercy, not because God refuses it, but because he refuses it, because the sinner refuses that mercy. Sad to say, there are those who can receive so many graces from God that by virtue of the fact that they have rejected so many of God's graces, that they have fallen into that obstinacy in sin, and they will, in the end, refuse final penitence and repentance. And it's something they've done to themselves in refusing the grace of God. But nonetheless, God will always offer at least the sufficient grace. The efficient grace is what actually moves the soul, despite all of its obstacles, to actually cooperate with God's grace. That's efficient grace. But sufficient grace would be enough to move the soul to repentance if it didn't resist mightily. And sufficient grace does not automatically overcome all, all resistance. And that is why a soul that is resisting and it is schooled in resistance, is hardened in resistance, has actually sealed itself off against God's grace, committed the sin against the Holy Ghost. Only powerful prayers of some good, just soul can obtain the efficient grace to break through that shell that a person has embedded himself in. There must be some very powerful graces from some loving souls. I can't help but think that Often, uh, holy relatives or dear friends who love enough to pray and sacrifice for souls in that state, with the prayers of our Blessed Mother also, can and will, will overcome that resistance. But nonetheless, the resistance is real, the resistance is there, and it can spell the doom of many souls, and I'm afraid it really does. So to that extent, one might actually say that yes, there is a certain limit beyond which a person is going to sink and cannot swim any longer and cannot come to the surface 
to get the breath of fresh air of grace, there is a certain turning point in a, in a person's life where he's rejected so many of the graces of God because he continually returns to sin and returns to sin and returns to sin over and over again. Even to the point that he has to question whether he really has true contrition and a firm purpose of amendment. <coughs> Beyond that point, yes, one can make the argument there's a limit beyond which one is irretrievable, not by God's choice, but by his own. He's rejected too many graces of God. Now, against all of this, we have the virtue of humility, and humility is the solution to all of these problems. It is the answer to every anxiety. St. Vincent de Paul said, that the most powerful weapon to conquer the devil is humility. St. Vincent de Paul said that. For as he does not know at all, as the devil does not know how at all to employ humility, neither does he know how to defend himself against it. And so humility is a great weapon to use against Satan. It completely befuddles him completely disarms the devil. St. Alphonsus Marie de Liguori says that prayer itself must be humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And here St. James the Apostle tells us that God does not listen to the prayers of the proud man, but resists them. Well, on the other hand, he is always ready to hear the prayers of the humble. The prayer of the man that humbleth himself shall pierce the clouds, St. Alphonsus says, and he will not depart till the Most High behold his prayer. The prayer of a humble soul at once penetrates the heavens and presents itself before the throne of God and will not depart thence until God regards it and listens to it. However sinful such a soul may be, God can never despise a heart that repents of its sins and humbles itself. A contrite and humbled heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. These are the words of St. Alphonsus, Alphonsus Liguori. And, of course, we read the words of St. Francis de Sales, as we've heard from him this week in the readings, to Philoteo, the lover of God. But my daughter, he says, I'm going a step further, and I bid you, everywhere and in everything rejoice in your own abjection. Here he's talking about her anxieties, about her lowliness. He says, perhaps you will ask in reply what I mean by that. In Latin, abjection means humility, and humility means abjection. So that when Our Lady says in the Magnificat that all generations shall call her blessed, because God hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden, she means that he has accepted her abjection and lowliness in order to fill her with graces and favors. Nevertheless, there is a difference between humility and abjection. For abjection is the poverty, the vileness, and the littleness which exist in us without our taking heed to them. But humility implies a real knowledge and voluntary recognition of that abjection. In other words, he says that we are vile, poor, and lowly, little, whether we accept it or not. But humility 
is the acceptance of these things, recognition of them, admission of them, and the acceptance that it's true. Not only acknowledging one's objection, he says, but in taking pleasure therein, not from any want of breadth of courage, but to give the more glory to God's divine majesty and to esteem God's, to esteem one's neighbor more highly than oneself. This is what I would have you do, St. Francis de Sales says to Philotea. I would have you not only admit and acknowledge your objection, but I would have you rejoice it, he says, because it will humble you before, uh, be hum it will humble you under the mighty hand of God and thus make you more pleasing to him. Now, these words of the saints basically are, are hinting in one direction, and that direction is, in humility, we are going to find a certain acceptance and a peace of soul, because God uses our lowliness and he uses our objection. He uses these things in order to break down the resistance in our soul, to overcome the resistance in our souls against him. These things are not only humiliating for the proud, they are humbling for the souls of the just. And they're so humbling for the souls of the just that they can wreak great miracles in the souls of, of those who love God and want to love him. So God will use these things to increase in us our humility so that his glory and his power can work there. What does St. Paul say? when he talks about the angel of Satan who was sent to buffet him, and he, St. Paul, asked God to take it away from him. And God said, no, I will not take it away from you. Why? Because my strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is made perfect in your lowliness. And so it was that St. Paul himself was still learning how to be lonely, lowly, not only in the eyes of God, but in his own eyes so that the strength of God could be made perfect in him. So God speaks highly of the humble. If you want to be a saint, it's important to be humble, says St. Francis de Sales. The most powerful weapon to conquer the devil is, again, humility, even as St. Vincent de Paul said. So St. Francis de Sales echoes those words. And we find St. Augustine very often writing about humility. He says that humility is the foundation of all the other virtues. Hence, in the soul in which this virtue does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue except in mere appearance. Now, St. Augustine was a rhetorician. He was a man used to the public eye. He was a man used to impressing people by his power of persuasion. He was a man who actually lived by that impression that he made on people. And yet, he had to learn humility himself. It's not surprising, therefore, to find him often speaking of the need for humility. Perhaps that was exactly the thing that kept his mother praying for him all those years while he was too proud to, to bow his head and receive the, the grace of baptism and the grace of faith because of his pride. And perhaps it is precisely that virtue that he was lacking, that now that he found it, it meant so much to him. Maybe that was his pearl of great price, his personal pearl of great price, St. Augustine. Humility, a hard-fought, learned lesson on his part. St. Teresa of Avila says, a truly humble person never believes that he can be wronged in anything. 
Truly, we ought to be ashamed to resent whatever is said or done against us. For it is the greatest shame in the world to see that our Creator bears so many insults from His creatures, and that we resent even a little word that is contradictory. And this is one of the great paradoxes of our lives. We have faith, we have hope, we have charity, we say we do. We love our Lord, we say we say we do. And yet we're so easily offended. And St. Teresa of Avila says we should be ashamed of ourselves, ashamed of ourselves for being so easily offended. And you know, you can tell when somebody's on the right track because people with faults are attacking him and saying all kinds of things against him. But how do you know whether he deserves all that or not? How do you know they're not right in all these evil things they're saying about him and that they're not all true? Well, one of the things is how the man reacts to that. If somebody is under attack and being being subjected to all kinds of criticism and uh, he's confronted with that and he reacts angrily and defensively, well, then you know, well, yeah, maybe there is a problem. But if he's confronted the fact that he's being slandered, he's being calumniated, being detracted from and all the rest, and he just accepts it in good grace, well, then you respect someone like that who accepts this in good grace and doesn't get angry, angry about it or anxious about it. He doesn't obsess about it. That's a very good sign. That's what you signed to all the saints, that when they were confronted with the fact that they were being attacked, their reputation was being attacked or they were being threatened or whatever, their reaction to that threat and that attack was very, very indicative of the state of their souls because they accepted that, not only accepted it in peace, but they accepted it with a certain comfort almost. They accepted it with a certain joy that they were being treated this way. And why would someone do that? Is it some kind of masochism or what is it? No, no, it's not that at all. But a true saint, such as those I've just mentioned to you, would say, well, I deserve this. And uh, rather than be upset about it and fight back about it and uh, try to defend myself and attack those who are attacking me, uh, I find... Uh, that I agree with much that is said. I'm, I can learn from it, but most of all, by my patience, I can actually uh, I can actually please God and serve God by uniting my forbearance with the forbearance of my Lord and my patience with the patience of my Lord in suffering for me. See, the saintly soul says, I don't have much to give to our Lord, so what little I do have to give, I gladly give. And that involves a little bit of patience every day. So it is not so much what is being said about somebody, but their reaction to what is being said about them that actually tells you a great deal about them and about their real character. And that's what St. Teresa of of Avila is saying here. And she was a prime example of uh, someone who was trying to serve our Lord, be faithful, and she was subject to all kinds of criticisms and attacks because of what she was trying to do. But perhaps God had her in school at that time, and she was learning what she would need to know in order to succeed in this life, to serve God and to be saved and be glorified in heaven. St. Augustine has said, St. Augustine says this, Do you wish to be great? Then begin by being lowly. Do you desire to construct a vast and lofty fabric, structure, 
Think first about the foundations, humility. The higher your structure is to be, the deeper must the foundation go. And how St. Augustine realized that. Now, even hundreds of years before St. Augustine, we have Pope St. Clement I, about the year 100. And here's what he wrote. We should let God be the one to praise us and not praise ourselves. For God detests those who commend themselves. Let others applaud our good deeds if we have them. Do not be impressed by that. Look to God. Do all for God. And St. Vincent de Paul actually echoes the words of St. Teresa of Avila. If humble souls are contradicted, they remain calm. If they are calumniated, they suffer with patience. If they are little esteemed, neglected, or forgotten, they consider that, that, that that is their due. If they are weighed down with occupations, they perform them cheerfully. So you, you begin to see in all of this that the very kind of things that cause the soul anxiety are offset by a real sanctity. That a real sanctity of soul enables uh, someone to take all of these contradictions, all of the storm going on around him, and just not only take it in stride with perfect peace of soul and calmness, but actually be somewhat amused by it, perhaps even. Not amused if it offends God, certainly, but insofar as it affects him personally, because he considers himself to be in the hand of God. And that whatever comes his way, he considers... It's something that God is allowing to happen for his own benefit, for his own good, for his own improvement, for his own advancement, for his own benefit, for his own sanctification, ultimately for his own glorification. And he sees, he sees it, therefore, in the eyes of God. That's what the saints did. All of the saints did exactly that. So it, together with what uh, St. St. Uh, Vincent de Paul says, together with what St. Teresa of Avila says, we hear the words of our Lord in St. Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so St. Augustine says, it was pride that changed angels into devils, but it is humility that makes men as angels. That's so true. So we, we have these words of the great saints instructing us uh, on the need for humility as the great remedy, the great remedy for all that troubles us and all that concerns us. Because by virtue of humility, we can not only learn our own limitations and learn to accept them, and even learn to rejoice in them. Why? Because together with that acceptance and that acknowledgement of our own limitations comes something else. Together with that comes a greater appreciation of the love and the power of God. And the lower we seem to ourselves, the lower in terms of whatever good there is in us, the more we ascribe whatever good that might be there, to God himself, the more we necessarily see in God the goodness and the power necessary to handle all of these things, to dispose of all of these things as he knows best. And we see his hand, his mighty hand moving in the affairs of men, even things 
that don't seem to be going in the right direction, we begin to learn how God does things. And we can begin to see what others cannot see. And that is we begin to see how God is actually moving the pieces on this board to give the right end and the right conclusion. And we trust him. And when we don't see, we don't see the rhyme or reason to how things are going. We think all is lost. Suddenly we have a, 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 a grace from God to trust him that tells us, trust me, trust me, <clears throat> trust me. And God admonishes us to put a great confidence in him and trust that he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows what graces are necessary. He knows when. He knows how to give them. <clears throat> our John, trust and pray. That's what our Lord is asking of us. St. Benedict says, we call our body and soul as were the sides of a ladder. Here's what he says. By that descent and ascent to heaven, we must surely understand nothing else than this, that we ascend we, we ascend by humility and we descend by self-exaltation, he says. <clears throat> He's talking about that ladder to heaven. Jacob's ladder, he said, we ascend that ladder by humility and we descend it by our pride and self-glorification. And the ladder thus set up is our life in the world, he says, which the Lord raises up to heaven if our heart is humbled. For we call our body and soul the sides of the ladder, and into these sides of our divine vocation, and inserted the different steps of humility and discipline, we must climb, we must climb them like rungs of a ladder. We have to climb them, and that's how we make progress toward heaven, by climbing those rungs of that ladder. And each rung on that ladder has a divine purpose. We have to accept that in all humility. St. Augustine again, if you should ask me what are the ways of God, I would tell you that the first is humility. The second is humility. And the third is humility. Not that there are no other precepts to give, but if humility does not precede all that we do, our efforts are fruitless. So the words of St. Augustine, a man who certainly had to learn that the hard way. And by the grace of his mother's prayers, he did. He must have been a pretty tough nut to crack, in, in a sense. Um, but mother's prayers, well, when St. Ambrose saw St. Monica's tears, he assured St. Monica, have confidence, she said, it is impossible that a son of so many tears should be lost. So... Her tears actually dissolved that shell around her son. And um, so we have, we have the confidence. Can we have the confidence of St. Monica? Can we have the, the confidence of so many others who had so far to go that it seemed like it was almost out of the question? Like St. Augustine? There is somebody in the history of the church that uh, stand against our pride and our humility, against our faithlessness, and assure us, yes, there's a remedy for all of this. There certainly is. But we have to uh, 
allow the grace of God to work. And for that, we need to stand down at times. We need simply to stand down and let the grace of God take the lead. So that is what humility does. It's what it did in our Blessed Lady. It is the solution to all anxiety. I mentioned that the ladies react differently to anxiety than we do. Well, you know that the irascible appetite is what reacts to perceived threats. And uh, there are two basic reactions we can have, to fight or to flee, fight or flight. Those are the two basic reactions. To run away in terror or to stand and fight. And women tend to be more of the flight mentality. They tend to be more of the flight mentality. To get out of the way, to get away, to go hide. Men have a natural tendency to want to stand their ground and fight it out. Right? There are times when men have to yield to intelligence, not just their natural instincts, and recognize there are things that I, because of my weakness, I need to flee from. All of the saints give us the same advice with regard to temptations to impurity because of the natural weakness that is there because of more, uh, original sin. Men really need uh, to show that they are not only animals but rational animals to recognize this is such that I have to get off the railroad tracks. This is coming through and I'm not going to be standing here when it does. I am going to get away from this temptation. I'm going to resist it. I'm not going to let it take control over me. And um, I can't duke it out with a temptation. I have to simply arm myself and keep it away and not let it come in my door, not let it come down my sidewalk, not let it out of my street. I have to avoid it entirely. That's what a man does, because he's not just an animal. He realizes that he does have an animal appetite, but he's a rational animal which tells him, I'm weak, this I must avoid. On the other hand, a woman who might have a natural tendency to flee, but she's going to stand and she's going to fight if one of her children is in, is in danger. And so she's going to resist that temptation to flee. She's not even going to think about it. She's not going to abandon the child. She's going to fight for that child. And so it's not that all men always stand and fight. It's not that all women always run away. There are reasons that should dictate to us what we should do under those circumstances. But regardless, I mean, all of these things have to do with perceived threats, and perceived threats induce anxiety in us. We men have to realize that by nature we have certain tendencies with regard to these anxieties, and we also have to be cognizant of the fact that the women in our lives, you know, our mothers, wives, daughters, and so on, that they also are affected by these things as well. That we men, we have to be able to not only get it right ourselves, we need to be able to console and comfort others and set a good example for them. We need to be able to reassure them and reassure them reasonably and faithfully. We need to comfort them in this anxiety with faith by showing real solid faith and trust and confidence in our Lord. We need that today, especially considering the circumstances of the world. 
We need to be able to stand and resolutely reaffirm continually our absolute confidence and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ, in our Father in heaven. We need to have that absolute confidence in God, that he is still as much God as he ever was, and he still has the divine power, and his love for us has not failed or diminished in any way. But that God is active, and he is overseeing all of this, and with by virtue of our prayers, if we stay in confidence in him, if we stand firm in our confidence in our Lord, and not lose heart, not lose patience, not lose humility, then we know the victory is already ours. Our Lord said, do not be afraid, I have overcome the world. We have to believe that with all our heart and soul, we have to believe that.